you would turn in your Bible to Matthew uh, chapter 26. Matthew 26. Uh, The Lord created people with a tremendous capacity for worship and for adoration and for love. Uh, Even in a sinful world, even today, in a world that is fallen, full of sin, uh, there is still in people a tremendous capacity for worship. Uh, So that people are not categorized or divided between those who are worshipers and those who are non-worshipers, or between those who love and those who do not love. Rather, people are distinguished, they're categorized between those whose worship and love are disordered and those whose worship and love have been reordered, redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ, so that we are worshiping the true object of worship, not idols or false gods, that our love and worship and adoration is aimed toward uh, the one true living God. Remember Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 as he was describing the character of the last days, this time between uh, the first and second coming of our Lord. He said, know this, understand this, that in the last days, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And the gospel of Christ includes the gracious work um, of replacing the heart of stone in fallen people, sinful people, with a heart of flesh, filled with love and adoration for the one who is worthy of worship. And as we're continuing in Matthew here, now chapter 26, we're looking at the heart of a particular individual, a woman in this narrative, Uh, whose worship and love has been reordered, has been captured by the wonderful person of Jesus Christ. So Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. Listen now to God's word. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing, a beautiful work to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she's done it to prepare me for burial." Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Well, at the heart of this story... Uh, is an offering of worship, of adoration, uh, and of love. Uh, 
Love will drive a person to do very bold, even extraordinary kinds of things. Uh, Anyone who has gotten down on one knee to propose marriage or been on the receiving end of that proposal knows the power and the impulse of love. Uh, I remember very well uh, back in August of 2001. Uh, This is a month before the 9-11 attacks. I had traveled to the Los Angeles airport, and when I arrived at the L.A. airport, I purchased a dozen roses. And I remember walking through the airport, still at a time when you could walk through much of it, with a bouquet of flowers, and I knew eyes were on me. You don't normally see that kind of thing. Somewhat of a bold move. But it didn't matter much to me because I was going to meet who I hoped would be my future wife. Someone I had not seen for seven months. It was Shelley, who is my wife. She had been on a study abroad program for those seven months in Australia. And here I was arriving with a dozen roses. I was nervous, but I was excited. And we saw each other. Our eyes met. The roses worked. The rest is history. But rewind seven months. I can remember very well when she was departing. It was very painful. It might have been painful for her too. I think it was more painful for me. Uh, But because as she was leaving, everything she was going to experience was brand new. She's going to a new part of the world, a beautiful part of the world. Going to have a new set of friends, new experience, new school. For me, nothing was changing except one thing. She She was going to be absent. She would be gone. We wrote letter after letter, email after email. We have kept many of these, of this correspondence. And if you read through them, which you will not do, but if you were to read through them, one of the central themes that runs through there is a longing to see each other again, to see each other face to face, to be in that person's presence. Sometimes the journey to enter the presence of the Lord is a costly one. It's costly. It is a journey that often requires a bold kind of love. And that is what we have demonstrated by this woman here in Bethany in this story. As she approaches the Lord, enters his presence, anoints him with this very expensive ointment. But I want us to step back because the arrangement of Matthew's gospel here. Uh, drives home all the more her boldness in act of love and adoration. Because her worship is offered not in an environment surrounded by peace and support and encouragement, not at all. It's not an environment that is encouraging her to act in this way. Rather, what we see, both from the hostility of the religious leaders on the outside as well as strong opposition from the inside, even among the ranks of the disciples, her act, her bold love, is highly discouraged, strongly discouraged. Notice in this narrative, the woman's action comes right in the middle of two acts of hostility and betrayal. One's coming from the religious leaders who are plotting together to arrest the Lord by stealth and to take his life. And then the other comes... On the other end, in verses 14 to 16, 
even from within the circle of disciples. And it's very likely Matthew wants to intend to communicate that, even through the arrangement. So let's consider both of these acts of hostility and betrayal. One, the religious leaders. So we're told in verse 3, the chief priests and elders gathered in the palace of the high priest, Caiaphas, and they were plotting together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said to each other, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Remember, as we've seen through Matthew and through Jesus' ministry, he has been opposing the teaching of the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the chief priests. But at the same time, our Lord's ministry and influence has increased. It has swelled. Many people are uh, drawn to him, what he has done and performed. And here now, it's Passover week. They're in Jerusalem. The population in Jerusalem is three or four times its normal size in the course of this week. As many in the rural areas would gather together to celebrate and commemorate God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. At the very heart of the Passover celebration. And it's here that the plot really thickens. Here you have people gathering, coming to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. Preparing to sacrifice a lamb. To remember the night of the exodus. When the blood of the lamb was smeared on the doorposts of people's homes. So that as the Spirit of God went through and would bring about judgment, he would pass over those whose homes have been marked by this blood, sparing them from judgment. And now you have here in Matthew the religious leaders, they're plotting together to put to death the Lord Jesus, whom the scripture says is the true Lamb of God, whose, shed, whose blood will be shed for the remission of sins. Look at those words, plotted together in verse 4. They, they hearken back to the second psalm, Psalm 2, which says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot? There's a plotting in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This redemption that Christ would, uh, would carry out and accomplish for us and this redemption in which we stand still today is surrounded by a world that is in opposition to the Lord. It's hostile to the kingdom. It is at enmity with God. That's the relationship between the world and the Lord. And it's an important point for us. Uh, there's no category or position for those who are indifferent toward the Lord Jesus Christ or toward his gospel. Uh, there's no position that suggests, well, if it's okay for you, if, if the gospel's okay for you, if, if the things of God and the Christian faith are okay for you, that's great. I support that. It, it's not for me. But, but I'm not opposed to it. There, there is no position that exists in this way. Remember what our Lord has taught us back in chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. There's those gathering and there's those who are scattered. Those who are with Christ, those who are against Christ. And then we see that this opposition is not only coming from the religious leaders, it's coming from within the band of the disciples. Isn't that a striking thing? That Jesus, fully aware of the deceptive heart 
and the betrayal that Judas would carry out would call him to be one of his twelve. That he would permit an enemy to serve within the circle of his disciples and his friends. Perhaps an important lesson, a reminder of the nature of the world in which we live, even within perhaps the church. God has wheat and he has weeds, wheat and tares. There's a key word repeated through chapters 26 and 27. We see it a few times even in our text. And it's the word translated delivered or handed over. So if you look at verse 2, it says, You know that the Passover is coming. This is Jesus speaking. And and the Son of Man will be delivered or handed over to be crucified. This word is repeated 14 times in these two uh, chapters. We see it again with Judas in verse 15, as he's speaking to the chief priests, and he asks him, what will you give me if I deliver or hand him over to you? And then again, a third time in verse 16. From that moment, he, Judas sought an opportunity to betray, to hand Jesus over. Throughout these chapters leading to the cross, it seems as if everyone's in this effort to hand Jesus over again and again. Judas, looking for an opportunity to hand him over to the chief priests. The chief priests are going to then hand Jesus over to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate is going to hand him over to the soldiers as the people cry out to Jesus, crucify him. And then the soldiers are going to hand him over to death. It seems when you read through it, almost as if Jesus is in this very a passive position, kind of a passive subject, without power, without ability, in this grand plot, this grand conspiracy that's, being, uh, that's taking place. And yet behind the curtain of each deliverance, handing over, is an, is, is an absolutely sovereign Lord who's carrying out this grand salvation for the people of God. What appears to be a powerless Christ is the one who told his disciples in verse 2 that he must suffer, he must be handed over to be crucified. It doesn't always seem that way, but our Lord rules with an absolute sovereignty. He is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And yet in the midst of this world, a world whose desires and loves are disordered, aimed at destroying the kingdom of Christ, betraying Christ, is this woman. Set right in the middle of this. Here is a woman whose desire and love has been ordered rightly. John's gospel tells us that this woman is Mary, sister of Lazarus and Martha, close companions and friends of the Lord Jesus. But we see, of course, that Mary recognizes in Jesus Christ something much more than a friend. Her actions demonstrate the value and worth that she sees in him. So we're told in verse 7 that a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. What a shocking uh, scene. A very drastically public kind of act. Uh, She doesn't cautiously and kind of discreetly grab Jesus' cloak on the way out of the house and kind of pull him aside privately. 
and express in words her commitment and devotion to him as the Lord. She says nothing. Nothing's recorded for her words. It's an action. And her action draws all attention. There's perhaps 15 people in this house. You've got Simon the leper, whose house it is. Martha, Mary, Lazarus, Jesus. You've got the disciples. Everyone sees this. It's a risky move on several fronts. First of all, a woman coming into a meeting of men was culturally questionable in this time, among the law abiding. Now, we might liken it in a lesser way today, like a child at the dinner table interrupting a conversation among adults. They've got something they want to say. They've got a question they want to ask. There's, there's norms, expectations, certain expected manners. As she's breaking a norm. But also, how will people respond? Did she process that? What will others think? What will they say? How, how might Jesus respond? And then we see her action is not subtle. It's not moderate. It is excessive. It's extravagant. It's a radical act. Generally, it seems that people are sort of averse and unfavorable toward others expressing uh, something radical, an excessive kind of faith. Generally, in our culture, people are okay if you have a faith as long as it's moderate. Don't take it too seriously. But her act is excessive. Matthew says it was an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. Uh, It was held in a vessel or vial that archaeology and history tells us was made of a semi-transparent stone. And they were so constructed that to get access to it, this alabaster flask, the neck had to be broken off. And once broken off, all the contents had to be used. It wasn't an ordinary oil or ointment. It was a perfume, a costly perfume. In Mark's gospel, he tells us it was worth perhaps 300 denarii. We've learned in Matthew what one denarii is about a day's wage of work. It's 300 worth, perhaps a whole year's worth of work. That's an incredible amount. John's gospel, in his telling of this incident, says that once it was broken and poured out, the aroma filled the whole room. What a scene. It's a scene that demonstrates the tremendous worth that this woman sees in the person of Jesus Christ. That the worth of Christ and the blessedness of entering into the presence of Christ is so great, so matchless, that no cost, there's no value, there's no excess that's too great to express devotion and love and worship for him. And the pouring out of this ointment, this perfume, is an expression of her heart being poured out in love and adoration and doxology. That is what... God desires for us to have those times in our lives, for sure, of doxology, where our hearts are alivened, where there is passion expressed for our God. The Apostle Paul does this in his letters, even as he's writing, these moments where he breaks out into doxology. At the end of Romans 11, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. 
For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Or Paul in 1 Timothy 1. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. But her act of love and worship teaches us something else. It reminds us that we exist for him. We exist to serve him. We exist to worship him. We exist to adore him. Her act reorders where our love ought to be aimed. It's so contrary to the culture in which we live. Even a culture within the church at times. It's a culture that can be defined so much by consumerism. Where the life even within the church of faith and worship can be about my needs or my wants or my preferences or my perspective. My, my, my. But true worship, true faith is the offering of our life to Him and for Him. Our time for Him, our talents for Him, our sacrifice for Him. And that's the place of fulfillment in life. And so the question surfaces, is my, is my faith costly? Is my devotion sacrificial? Uh, is my worship and adoration about my own end or the glory of Jesus Christ? This woman's devotion is so excessive that the disciples themselves who have been following the Lord's ministry, they press back. Verse 8, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. They were furious. Why this waste? Don't the disciples have a point? What is the practical benefit of this excessive pouring out? Uh, To what end? And yet, maybe it is the practical that most challenges the disciples. Maybe their minds are so bent on the pragmatic and and the practical. What what value is this really for? They can only see using this in some kind of tangible, physical way. Maybe they do have a point. But what does Jesus do? He defends the woman and her devotion. What cost, what worth, what value can be placed upon honoring Jesus Christ? And and once again, isn't it amazing how our Lord, He doesn't divert attention away from His own worship, receiving love and adoration in this kind of extravagant way. If you or I received or welcomed such an act of adoration, I think people around us would highly question our character. Rightly so. And yet Jesus says, why do you trouble this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Literally, she's done a great work to me or for me. You always have the poor, but you will not always have me. What a powerful statement. Jesus lifting up his own worth in this act that she pours out. So the Lord honors heartfelt devotion to him. It's not the excess or the extravagance that Jesus honors. Perhaps that's a part of it. 
It's certainly what gets the disciples' attention. But the Lord looks on the heart. Remember the widow's offering in Luke chapter 21, who gave only two copper coins. But when Jesus saw it, he honored her, for she gave out of her poverty. It was sacrificial. It was heartfelt. And the Lord honors that. J.C. Ryle commenting on this text says, The deeds and titles of many a king and emperor and generals are as completely forgotten as if written in the sand. But the grateful act of one humble Christian woman is recorded in 150 different languages and is known all over the globe. The praise of man is but for a few days. The praise of Christ endureth forever. The pathway to lasting honor is to honor Christ. Whether this woman intended it or not, what does Jesus do with her act but point to his necessary suffering and death? Verse 12, In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. And I want us to see that beneath the surface of this woman's extravagant offering is a far greater offering that God has offered up, that God has provided for us. The fourth and final time through Matthew's Gospel in those first verses of this chapter, Jesus speaks about the necessity of Him as the Son of Man suffering and being crucified, being offered up for His people. You know that the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's the greatest offering of all, of what God has poured out in loving kindness for his people. We read in Romans 5, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This offering that Christ has provided is made known to us. It, this is an offering extended to sinners. This is an offering that covers sin. This is an offering that reconciles people uh, to God himself. Let's pray together. Oh God, how we thank you for the testimony of this woman and her faith and the expression of it in love and adoration for who you are. Oh Lord, may it reach into our hearts your very word. Lord, how we thank you most of all for the offering of your Son, for the redemption of our souls. Lord, we pray that in response to the sacrificial gift of your Son, that we might have lives that are indeed um, the aroma of Christ as we rest in the gospel, as we herald and proclaim the gospel, that we would indeed uh, provide and offer up a pleasing aroma to you. Do this through your people, O Lord, by the power of your Spirit. For this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.